Hello everyone and welcome to Boothcast. Today's Boothcast is brought to you by the Sean Partners Race Week here in WA. It's happening in November. It's there's $200,000 up for grabs. Uh, there's a whole host of different racing going on for the whole week. It's happening from the 16th to the 21st of November. If you want to find out more, please check out oceanpaddler.com. And if you want to train for the event, please check out my website. Um, I've got a training plan for 24 weeks. It covers the whole Australian Ocean Racing Series. Now I'm going to throw you over to my interview with John Batson, MD, where we talk about injuries in sport, specific to paddling, and a bit on nutrition. Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people about sport, business, and the winning mindset. Today's Boothcast is with John Batson. He's an MD from Low County Spine and Sport. Uh, he's a semi-elite uh, stand-up paddler, finishing third in the Chatter Jack before, so he does have a bit of a pedigree in the sport. He is a, a medical doctor, so he understands a little bit about the injuries that are happening in stand-up paddling, and I've had a few guests writing in asking me to, to do something like this, so it's, it's nice that we have John's time here today. He's from North Carolina in the United States, and I'm very happy to have him on. So, John, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks, Michael, for having me. These uh, boothcasts have been great, especially during this time uh, when we're not all working quite as hard. Yeah, it's been really cool to, to speak to so many different people and actually now it's sort of getting on doctors and speaking about uh, injuries in stand-up paddling. But first off, can we talk a little bit about um, you and tell us a bit of your background and how you got involved in stand-up paddling and then we'll get into talking about injuries in stand-up paddling. Sure. So I, I grew up on Hilton Head, uh, South Carolina, not North Carolina. Uh, Sorry. But yeah, so um, we're, we're the other Carolina. And so, um, uh, but Hilton Head is a barrier island. We're actually the second largest barrier island on the East Coast behind Long Island. And so um, for whatever reason, my mom dropped me off to learn how to windsurf one day and, and I loved it. And that was my sport growing up. And uh, the same shop that I would uh, later teach at windsurfing got into kayaking. So I kind of got into kayaking too. Uh, and really kind of enjoyed that from a fitness standpoint and then went off to med school and did a, the rest of my training and uh, we moved back down to Hilton Head um, about 13, 14 years ago and then in 2015 got into stand-up paddling. Yeah and so you've been paddling ever since and what was it about the stand-up paddling that got you involved um, in 2015? Well uh, one was just it looked kind of neat out there. I, th I, um, I think a few things. One, I was working pretty hard and, and medicine now we have to do a lot of note taking. And so uh, I found myself sitting and the last thing I wanted to do when I got home was sit in a kayak again. So uh, that was appealing. And then once I tried it and it, at that time frame, that's when the, the boards were getting a little bit faster and starting to figure out some things with technique, I think. And and I just could tell it was starting to really take off. And so for me, I just loved the workout. I found, you know, it, it seemed to be a bit more total body workout. When I went out and paddled hard, it, I really felt like I, I, you know, got a great exercise on the water. Yeah, and I know you have a surf ski as well. And you like to sit down, you like to paddle, but now then stand up paddling came along. Can you tell us a little bit of the, I guess, the biomechanics that are different between, say, a surf ski and a stand up paddleboard? Well, I'm not very good at surf ski. I actually uh, uh, purchased that about a year and a half ago, actually, um, when Carolina Cup was doing the dual race, you know, the next day, some yep. folks would do the OC1 and surf ski. 
I, I was like, okay, that's pretty cool I, that those guys are doing that. And I wanted something a little different than stand up just to cross train. Uh, that's when I got the surf ski. So I can paddle it in flat water, but I'm not good in, in the swell and whatnot now. But, yeah. um, you know, I think obviously that there is the similarity of some balance skills and reading the water and, and um, you know, obviously being an upper body dominant sport that involves your core a lot in both cases. But uh, stand up paddling, I think in general, you'll feel a little bit more um, resistance, obviously. It, it's a, a bit more... I think I heard you say more like strength training where the surf ski is a bit more aerobic. Uh, as soon as you sit in a surf ski, like, you know, it's just glide and very fast and, and um, paddle boarding at times is very uh, stressful. And, you know, especially into wind or into chop, you really can tell the difference. Um, so I, I think, you know, there, there are some similarities, but it's been good to learn a little bit of both. I think, you know, when I was dealing with an elbow injury that bothered me for paddle boarding, I found I could surf ski. And so, having that crossover was good. Yeah, it's nice to have that crossover. And I think I've read something that you've written as well, having sort of like the upper body um, training, obviously in the stand up or in the, in the surf ski, and then being able to do that lower body activity, whether that's running or biking is sort of a good um, comparative sort of training tool to be able to do and be able to sort of work different systems while giving another sort of section of your body a rest. Um, but what was interesting, yeah, I remember going to that Carolina Cup and doing the surf ski and the stand up in, in the same event. And that was kind of really nice to do because you could race Saturday and Sunday and coming a long way from Australia, it was always nice to be able to, to do those two events. And hopefully we get to do Carolina Cup later on in the year. Um, right. But let's talk, let's talk about stand up paddling injuries. You mentioned like you had an elbow injury. Um, what are the common themes that you've seen over time in stand up paddling that um, a lot of people are getting injured at like whether that's like I know there's a lot a lot of overuse injuries in stand up paddling because a lot right. of repetitive motion. Um, could you just let us know a little bit about um, the injuries that you've seen? Right. So we have a couple studies out there. One is actually from Australia. Uh, ben Tram put out. Uh, he's a PhD. I think he did his thesis actually in paddle sports or stand up paddling. So um, quite a resource over there. They've got a, a water research lab, um, but their survey-based studies, another one was actually done here in South Carolina and Columbia, but the, the gist basically is the more competitive you are, the more hours you're spending on the water, you're more prone to get injuries. And like running or cycling, any sport that would be, you know, I guess a more uh, endurance type event, uh, we tend to get overuse injuries. And so the ones that we see mostly shoulder, uh, and upper arm, and then low back, and then elbow and forearm. Those were kind of the, the, the top three in both those studies. And, and what, what sort of causes that? Is it more so repetition or is it technique, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, uh, being a new sport, we're, we're kind of just starting to learn these things. And that's one way uh, sports medicine, I think, has a role here. You know, when, when I did my training in sports medicine, an interesting thing is you learn about the sport history first, and then you kind of see the evolution of safety gear and technique and things like that. So you, you document these injuries, and then a lot of uh, the lab work starts to show things, oh, we can improve you know, things with this safety gear or this technique, that type of thing. And then it gets back integrated into the sport. And so with paddleboarding, it's kind of interesting just because we're, we're living through that right now. It's such a new sport. And technique has changed just in the few years that, that I've done it. You know, when I first learned, I remember going and getting the paddle and they said, okay, put your hand like this on your head and that's going to be your paddle length. 
And, yeah. you know, now it's kind of like this, you know, it, it's gone the opposite way. And so um, as we see uh, some of the equipment change, that may shift and we may see low back injuries kind of rise up a bit uh, and shoulder injuries come down because if you're paddling all the time like this, obviously you're more prone to a shoulder injury. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that, the, the, the shaka measurement. And that was always quite interesting for me coming from a, a kayaking or a surf ski background where it's like everyone knew your length. Like if you're in kayaking, you're paddling between like maybe 217 and 220 centimeters. And then um, on your surf ski, it was like between 210 and about 213, most of the guys were paddling at. And then I came into stand up paddling. It was like a shaka. I was like, well, how long is your shaka? Have you got a big hand? Have you got a small hand? And people still right. use it. I'm like, can you go measure your shaka and then come back to me? And then I'll let you know. Uh, how yeah. how how long I think your paddle should be. So that's been interesting, and obviously that's just evolution because people at the right. start of any sport, as you say, like don't really know the ins and outs. They're just making it up as we go, and we're still making things up. Like I know when I came into the sport in about 2016, I sort of kind of changed the technique that most of the guys were doing in a way because I came from that background. Where it was like more power on the catch. It was like accelerating through the front of the stroke and then then getting the paddle out at the feet. So that was more like a forward yeah. stroke. So it was more power, more hip hinging, as we're going to get into in a little bit. And it was more about uh, sinking the blade and getting it out. Whereas a lot of guys were like, had that old sort of um, outrigger technique where you started at the front and you had that really long paddle and you sort of swung all the way through your stroke. But um, some, some guys still do it. And I think that's something that each of us have to work out in our paddling, like what works best for us. Like just because one technique works for somebody doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else. But when you have that longer paddle, as you've suggested, you do get that um, sort of that open shoulder where you sort of got more open tendons and little muscles in your shoulder where you can potentially damage that. That's why I always yeah. sort of teach that uh, bringing the shoulder back into its socket rather than being out here. Is that something that's going to be able to help prevent those type of injuries? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, uh, as, as I, this was a, when I was really interested in these injuries, uh, it was for a talk in 2018 um, for the American College of Sports Medicine. And so uh, that's where I found uh, Dr. Schramm's uh, research and then started to look into this and kind of really start thinking about, okay, how, what's happening, you know? And that's when uh, probably in that same time frame, I went to a dugout board and, and all of a sudden I needed to lower my paddle down. And, and at the same time, I started looking around at these folks who were really fast and I said, man, they're their blades are so much smaller than mine. What am I doing? And so I also had just done the Chattajack uh, for the first time and I was like, God, that hurt. <laughs> and so, so I really shifted a lot of things, you know, I was, and a lot of people were doing this at the same time. The blade thighs were getting smaller. The shaft length was getting smaller. People were standing lower into the water. And so, you know, one of the tests we do for shoulder impingement is kind of put you up in this direction here. And that's really in some of those early sub years, that's kind of the shoulder position you're in for miles and miles you know so i i think we're certainly going to see a shift uh in things and and i think as i looked into it and and just living through it too being uh competitive and training more i found gosh i'm starting to have less low back pain and so it's interesting if you have the right technique i think your back gets really strong with stand-up paddling and that's one one thing that some other studies have shown too is that trunk endurance uh strength improves and there have been some studies that show if you have a stronger trunk uh, and your endurance is better with your trunk muscles, you're less prone to chronic low back pain. And so I found that I'm, I don't get those exacerbations of back pain that I would get from time to time as much. And, and so I think with the right technique and lowering the paddle, all of a sudden shoulder injuries may come down and the back injuries may improve too, as we all are trying to 
kind of um, mimic what you guys are doing at the top of the field. Yeah, it's quite interesting talking about the, the lower back injuries because I know when I first came into the sport, I think in around 2014, I think it was, and I was just practicing stand-up paddling and I had the, the I guess, the sit-down um, background and sort of paddling and rotating and my whole lower back was just killing me and I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to actually train a whole week just stand-up paddling. Like, And that was my initial idea to bring in surf ski and bring in um, running and gym and all these different movements to try and allow myself to have allow my back to actually rest because it was just so much loading and because you were loading quite a lot through your hamstrings i guess and and your and your quads you, you, my hamstrings kind of were very very tight so i had to like kind of lengthen them so then i could sort of sit my hips back and down and then i could sort of i could sort of hinge from that position rather than sort of throwing my hips forward or um going further forward on my feet or my i, I sort of teach this like very in a way basic technique where it's just like efficiency over um i don't know the extremities and trying to get the biggest range of motion like i'm just always trying to focus on having that i don't know 50 strokes a minute or whatever it is consistently effectively over that race that i'm going to do so yeah there was it was really interesting coming into to the sport and having all that lower back pain and what i learned was actually to work on more on my core more on my legs and more on stretching actually which made a massive difference um, for me, because the, the, the more lengthened my hamstrings were, the less less prone my back was to getting sore. Um, what is is that something that can really help, like stretching through yeah. something like the hamstrings? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, if I can get this up so you can see it, you know, your your hamstrings attach down here in the pelvis, and so if they're really tight, it actually pulls your pelvis like so, and your back flattens out. So it puts a lot of strain on the joints, the discs, and eventually the nerves uh, in your back. So if you can lengthen the hamstring, you actually see that normal curvature in the back uh, kind of come back, so to speak. But that's um, a large portion of what I do in practice is treat back pain and, and neck pain. And uh, with the backs in particular, tight hamstrings is a very common association. And then uh, with uh, the typical diets we all have now or a lot of people have in lack of fitness, you combine that with some weakness in the core muscles, and that's why we see chronic low back pain so common. Um, but even in, you know, very fit people, you know, you have to train those muscles, and especially in a sport like paddleboarding, I mean, you get into a crosswind or some chop where you're really balancing, and, and it can be really taxing, you know, on your back. I mean, even, even now, I, you know, I'll notice that if I go out and paddle in a strong wind or something, you just have to you know, build that up, but I'm, I'm just seeing I don't have those exacerbations of pain that I had, and I think a lot of people are noticing that, that their backs feel so much stronger with the newer techniques of paddling, um, and I think that position that you're, you're teaching and a lot of the coaches are teaching, you know, you're, you're kind of stretching those hamstrings most of the time that you're paddling, you know, and so it's, it's almost like, you know, while you're paddling, you're getting stronger in the core, and you're stretching your hamstrings and your calf at the same time. So it's it's neat to see that happen, and and for me in particular, I just found it it really helped my you know flare ups that I was getting. Yeah, the the idea I guess behind doing a technique like that was actually to load the glutes, the hamstrings, and the quads, and the ITBs, and like even the inner groin, load that up a lot more. So then you're taking a lot of pressure away because if you think. Well, if I think about the back, I think there's only like, you get your big muscles up top and your lats and everything, but then it comes down and joins on the bottom of the spine from what I understand. And that's, yeah. there's only like little bits that grab on. And, and I basically 
learned that because I've had issues myself because when I was younger, maybe when I was about 13, I think it was, and I was just starting out paddling prone boards on my knees and I got uh, bilateral stress fractures in my L3 and L4 in my lower, lower spine. And that was like one of the things that I learned like the hard way. This is like, you can't put too much pressure on that for a long period of time. I've actually had stress fractures in my, um, in my calves from running as well. So like I originally you get shin splints and then you get stress fractures and I run with the stress fractures and then eventually I actually cracked my shin. But so my bone density was like, obviously not amazing, but I, I did my best, but I, I just was a very hard trainer. So I just got all these overuse injuries and I just kept pushing because if I was like, Oh, if it's hurting, it's working, but that's not necessarily the case. Like what are the warning signs for people when they're getting these type of injuries? Um, what would say like a symptom of a lower back injury that you probably like probably should stop. Like I stop basically as soon as I feel something now because I'm just like not worth getting through the session, but like this, um, I don't know, muscles pulling on tendons, like all sorts yeah. of different stuff. Like how do you know? Right. It's a good question. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things that can hurt in the low back. And so, um, you know, when you're young, like, like you were, uh, we take low back pain very seriously just because it's more common for us to find something wrong, like a stress fracture, uh, than it is just to say, oh, just pull the muscle, don't worry about it. So especially when a young athlete comes into the office, um, if they've got back pain that's persisting past a couple weeks, and they're a really, you know, kind of a competitive athlete that does a lot of twisting or arching or bending, the most common thing is that stress fracture that you mentioned. Uh, so we, we look for that and MRIs are really good at, at detecting that these days. And the tough thing with that is it just takes a, a long time resting uh, from the activity. And so like any, when you look at stress fractures in general, some of them heal really quickly. Uh, but we have about five of them in the body that don't heal well. And in general, when uh, we look at things that don't heal well in sports medicine, it's because there's typically not as much blood supply there. So whether it's the stress fracture in your you know, tibia, your shin that doesn't heal well, or the fifth metatarsal in the foot or the pars area in the low back, you know, the concept is you got to really rest it, take weight off. If you just keep training, it just will not heal. And so uh, that's one thing. So low, uh, younger patients, we worry about the bones, stress fractures in particular. Uh, when you see middle-aged folks, that's when we sometimes see disc injuries. And a lot of times, we see people who've just finished schooling, they're getting out and, um, you know, having their first job, they're sitting a lot. Uh, so they're little tiny muscles. You mentioned the big muscles in the back. Those are your, those are your gym muscles, but these little tiny muscles, the multifidi are so important. And, you know, if you have good posture, you're sitting up nice and tall, you're engaging those core muscles, those multifidi are really what That's you're firing. That's we, we talking right. about this. Too, That's right. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's good for me because I'm kind of walking around all day telling people to sit up straight, so I kind of have to do it too. Um, but middle-aged folks, we start to see those disc injuries come into play. And um, then as, as people get older, a lot of my crowd that I'm seeing now, I live in a retirement community, uh, so they're dealing with everything. They've got squished discs, they've got arthritis, they've got spinal stenosis. And so, you know, unfortunately, when humans went upright in evolution, we started to get a lot of back pain. We just, we've, we've got kind of a weak link in our chain. Animals don't tend to get all these problems that we have in our back. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the, the gist of what we see. And, and in varying levels, you have to adjust the treatment based on that. You know, the younger athlete with the stress fracture, that person's got to rest. Uh, and typically it's three months off of sports. 
there's braces potentially, eventually physical therapy, and they work a lot on hamstring flexibility, and then gradually getting back into it. Um, in your case, like if you had a, a few stress fractures, you'd obviously want to check bone density and get a, you know, a, a history of their eating habits, especially in females, making sure they're getting enough calories in, that type thing. Uh, and then for the middle-aged crowd, our goal there is typically just to remind them, okay, you're getting older and you, you got to take care of yourself. And especially if you're going to add some sport after work, like paddleboarding, you really have to, you know, do the right things, uh, maybe have an upright, you know, uh, workstation so they're not sitting all the time uh, and you really work those core muscles. Because, you know, if, if you think about it, like if you're slouching all day at work and then you go into the gym and you do maybe 15 minutes of some core workout that that does not in any way, you know, make up for the stress of you slouching all day. And so then if you add a, something like paddleboarding, that's a pretty good stress to that area. If you're not training regularly, uh, obviously injuries can occur. And then the older crowd, we're just, we're trying to just keep them going. You know, I mean, it's treating the arthritis one day, it's treating the stenosis the next day and, you know, just trying to keep them healthy and keep, you know, cause it's so important at that age to keep them mobile, keep them independent. So, you know, it's different challenges through everyone's life cycle and where you are in, in that. There's obviously different um, things happening to people's bodies, different stages, I guess, with the, the kids. I remember I had got Osgood Slayers in my knee because I got growing pains from prone paddleboarding and then I had the stress fractures and then had a few different injuries. But they definitely, it's sort of like between like, I guess, one and 10 and then 10 and 20 and then 20 and 30, you sort of have like, you're probably seeing um, general trends of people um, yeah. getting similar injuries at different times. So I know like now I have to be so much more careful with my training. Like if I don't warm up properly or something like that before I do a, a sprinting session like I did that uh, recently at the start of 2019 I actually tore an intercostal muscle on my right hand side or sorry on my left hand side I'm um, doing a sprint doing sprinting for a photo shoot with starboard of all things um, I, I just was in the middle of my off season and um, George the photographer was like hey like can you do a sprint and I was like yeah sure actually the photo the photos from last year's model of me sprinting I actually tore my intercostal oh. in that photo shoot and then I, was just like, I just can't do it anymore. I don't know what's wrong. And then it was like six weeks of like, um, like rehab, I guess. And I couldn't really paddle. I could foil though, cause I could paddle on my right hand side, but I couldn't paddle on my left. So that was like the saving grace. But yeah, yeah. there is a lot of different injuries that are happening over time. And I guess, as you spoke about with um, the, the back injuries and the stress factors through there, stretching is a good um, preventative action. And obviously the, the core work, is there any other types of preventative actions that people can be doing to, to stop, these type of injuries occurring? Well, I mean, it's, it's tough because sometimes we have to know that everybody's so particular with their uh, body habitus and what training they're doing. And so to some degree, you just have to have that threshold of understanding, okay, if I'm starting to get pain, I, I need to, you know, listen to that. That's our body's kind of warning sign that something's not quite right there. And sometimes it can just be overtraining and we have to dial things back a bit, maybe make some adjustments. But you know, if someone comes in in the early stages and they've got elbow pain or shoulder pain, there's a lot of good therapy type exercises. Like with the shoulder, we work on rotator cuff strength and the scapular stabilization muscles just to try to keep keep everything safe there. Uh, the elbow, we focus a little bit on, you know, some of the eccentrics of the forearm, those type strengthening exercises and maybe some different massage techniques to try to help, you know, that tissue kind of heal better. Um, I mentioned, you know, that paddleboarding, the injuries that we typically see with the racing crowd or the fitness crowd, 
those are, like we said, the overuse type injuries. And, and there are acute traumatic injuries that are a bit more like surfing style that we see. Um, but, you know, occasionally you hit, you, you fall, you, you miss a stroke, you hit your board, you know, something can come up like that. Um, but typically we're going to see these overuse injuries and they tend to just point out weak, weak links in our, in our body. Some, you know, you get a little tear, it doesn't quite heal well. Uh, and so I think for the athletes out there, if you're really being competitive, it's, it's always good to kind of seek that medical care early on. You know, if, if, you, if you have some mild pain and you can ice it, make little adjustments, and you're able to keep paddling without any sharp pain, I think that's, that's probably fine. It, it hopefully will just get better on its own. But if you make some little adjustments and it's going on past, say, two weeks, three weeks, then I would say get in with, you know, a sports medicine type physician, physiotherapist, that type thing just so you can try to make those little adjustments. And oftentimes a good therapist or sports physician uh, can really find some little subtle things that, that are just easy to add to your regimen. And then those would be things like with you, your core work is so important because of your back history or with you know someone who had a shoulder injury, let's say they had an injury with their shoulder playing high school sports and now they're getting into paddle boarding. They may need to focus on some shoulder rehab type exercises that keep their shoulder, you know, kind of in good shape. Um, so those, I think that's important too. When you look at the ages of paddleboarders, most of them are 35 to 55. So a lot of that crowd uh, has had some injury in the past. You know, they're in many cases had some type of, of, of injury when they were growing up. And it's not necessarily that paddleboarding gave them an injury. It's just paddleboarding highlighted that they had a, a problem area. So that, that's, you know, kind of important too, I think. And, and people, you know, tend to come in with overuse type injuries later rather than sooner. You know, we have that mentality. We got to just keep training, keep training, keep training. Yeah, it is quite interesting hearing about the mentality as well, because I know that like different generations have different mentalities. Um, I think especially my father's generation and, and like sort of the 60 plus I guess we're very much like you never go to the doctor, especially here in Australia. You never go to the doctor. You're, you're not you're soft if you if you go see someone, or if I'm injured, oh no, I'll be fine, or she'll be right. Is basically the Australian term that people use, and okay. it just it just it's quite um, interesting, I guess, as an athlete because like I know now I've learned the hard way in a way. Like if I don't go seek some sort of medical attention, or I actually go see a physio most of the time when I've got an injury, like I'll basically stop, go see the, the physio, and I'll see them like five times a week until the injuries fix and then I know exactly what I need to fix for going right. forward or the preventive actions that I need to do and I, I can sort of echo what you're saying there it's so important to go see someone as soon as possible yeah I, I think you know there's there is a uh, mentality unfortunately with some uh, even parents and coaches that we treat the young athletes and it's oh don't go to the doctor they'll just keep you out of sports you know and and sports medicine is very different. I mean, our, our motto is we want you to be active and healthy and doing your sport. And it's very rare for me to, to say you need to just not do your sport. I mean, normally we're trying to um, make modifications so that athletes can keep training. And, you know, it's different if you see something broken, you know, you see the stress fracture in the back, that's different. I have to say, okay, we got to take a break. Your body, this is a significant injury. You can have chronic back pain. We got to get this to heal. Um, but it's, it's very different if someone comes in and, and we understand a little bit about the sport and we can make some little changes. And that was one reason I gave that talk at that American College of Sports Medicine meeting is you get the information out there and a lot of sports doctors are really hungry for that, you know, because if, if we see someone come in with a new sport, 
and we don't know about the sport, it's very unsettling, you know, so we yeah. want to be able to get athletes back out there and make those little modifications. So, um, you know, I think information like what Dr. Schramm is putting out from um, Australia, it's, it's so important just to get that information to the people like me who are on the front lines, you know, answering questions to patients. Uh, so I would just say to athletes, let that sports physician and the sports therapist, you know, that's part of your team now, you know, and that's, that's an important shift, I think, in, in that mentality, like you said, that, that we want to be part of your team. We want to help you succeed. And, and, you know, you look at the top people in any sport, I mean, they've got a team, you know, they've got yeah. the sports chiropractor, the therapist, you know, their trainers, the nutritionist, and that's kind of the concept of success is you have all those little boxes checked so that if anything happens, they can make little adjustments. Yeah, I think it's really important in any sport and in any sort of thing that you're doing in life that you've got to have a really good support structure around you. And that includes, I guess, I guess your friends and your family, your coaches, but then it does come down to the professionals in, in the sports medicine and uh, physiotherapy and all those different things that we need to sort of make sure that we can get to the start line that we want to get to. Like I know with, with coaching, like it's not only for me, it's not only about um, training the athletes it's actually like talking to the athletes and making sure mentally that they're okay like that's become a big part of actually my coaching it's just like because you have so many different personalities that going into races and some people thrive on the big occasion and absolutely love it but some people just shy away from it and don't like it and you've got to sort of encourage those people and some people get too excited so you got to like bring them down and it's just it's such a like I guess a, a little bit of a mystery like how you actually treat all these different people and I'm sure it's exactly the same uh, for sports science yeah, for sure. And that, that mental aspect, I mean, once you get to a certain level, that's probably what's going to separate people who are, you know, the, the top, you know, versus someone who's a good paddler, but, or a good athlete, um, you know, it, it, and that's something that kept me out of paddleboarding racing and for a while. I mean, I just didn't have any interest in showing up and getting nervous around a bunch of people. And, and so a lot of people have that feeling, you know, you, you show up to Carolina cup and you're, you know, on the beach with, all these paddlers who, you know, they, they look like they're just top of the world because they are. And, and, you know, it's very nerve wracking. Um, but once you start to get to know some people and you can kind of settle in a little bit and relax, but you know, that's, that is a big job of coaches to kind of feel out that athlete and, and hopefully kind of have them in the right mental state too, so that, you know, they're ready to go. And, um, you know, it, it goes along with good, you know, just, just health of the paddler. You, you want to make sure that they're, the, the environment that they're in is not too stressful. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, talk, going back a little bit to um, impact injuries for stand-up paddling, um, is there like a percentage? Because I know um, back in like 2016, I actually um, smashed my ribs. I don't know which side it was in a Australian titles. Uh, we we're at the Gold Coast. I think we we're at Corumban Beach there on the Gold Coast. And at my board, I popped away, and my boards came back and smacked me in the ribs. And I ended up like doing the distance race the next day. And I think it was an intercostal injury in the end, but I actually didn't go see anyone because, you know, we live and we learn. But I paddled the next day in an 18-kilometer distance race and I, I finished and I won. But it was just like, you know, you start with a, a muscle, muscular injury and as you get warmer, it tends to like the pain tends to reduce because you get more blood flow through it. You actually, the, the muscle starts to lengthen. And it's not as tight because when it's healing, it's obviously trying to like con contract and sort of heal all those fibers. Um, but it just never felt better. Like every stroke for 18 kilometers, it just hurt. Then I finished the race and I had to actually get my mum to carry my board for me because my, my ribs were just so sore and I just couldn't work out why. And I think yeah, later on I sort of worked it out. But 
yeah, there's those type of injuries that really sort of hurt and don't get better. Is there any symptoms like between, say, a, a muscular injury and a bone injury that you can sort of detail to the people listening? Well, I think um, the, what you mentioned is, is very true in that you have an injury and, and we tend to kind of splint that area a bit. Your, your you know, body tries to protect that. It's just a natural instinct so that hopefully things do go on and heal. Um, you know, for, if you're, if you're into running, um, if you're limping, uh, that's not good. You know, I mean, if you can run and you feel something that's a little bit, um, mildly sore, but it actually gets better as you're going, then that's a good sign that it's probably muscular and it was a little tightness and that blood flow helped things loosen up a little bit. Um, but if you're, you know, dealing with something that's on the verge of a stress fracture, that's not going to feel good. The more you go, it's going to hurt more with each step and each pounding and kind of the same thing in paddleboarding. If we look at elbow, shoulder, low back, any of those things, you know, if, if you feel it a little bit when you're doing the activity, um, but it doesn't really get worse. And then at the end of the activity, you can go through your rehab protocol. You're doing your stretching, your eccentric strengthening for, you know, the elbow or, or you're doing your rotator cuff exercises for the shoulder, you're doing your core work for your low back, your hamstring stretches. If you can do all that at the end, then ice it and you feel kind of good after that, then I think you're okay to kind of keep training through that. Um, but it's where, you know, if every stroke you're feeling pain or something that's more sharp kind of sensation, uh, that would be more concerning that there may be a, a tear or an injury that, that you need to be more, you know, kind of more diligent to pull back a little bit on the training. Uh, or give it a, a break with a, a short period of rest. Uh, with the low back, since, you know, a lot of our paddlers kind of in that 35 to 55 year old range. And, you know, I mentioned that they tend to get disc type injuries. Um, if you're feeling nerve pain, like going down your leg, like sciatica, you know, we generally don't want to train through that. I would try to get that better before you're getting back out to paddleboarding. Um, and so there are certain things I think that you just have to kind of have that body awareness that sharp pain, you know, if you're limping with an activity, every stroke it's hurting, you know, that's something that you're, you're not going to get through that just kind of paddling and, and giving it time. That's something you probably need a little bit more dedicated rest and um, the rehab exercises. Um, when I've, I've had a lot of paddlers just kind of send me messages on Facebook and whatnot, just of, uh, looking for suggestions. And you know, other little things, I think if you're, you know, since we know the upper body's uh, kind of a dominant injury in our sport, if it's an elbow or a shoulder, you know, other little things you can look at, certainly uh, having a, someone, you know, review their technique, make sure there's not little changes they can make there. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the paddle, you, you'd want to maybe lower the paddle a little bit, uh, maybe make a, uh, get them in a smaller blade. Um, and stiffness is important too. I think obviously there's different stiffness to the paddles. Um, the more stiff, more stress basically, you know, and, and some people can handle that and, and some people might be uh, benefited by having a little more flex in the paddle that's not so stiff or jarring to the upper body. And I think grip is important too, especially when you're dealing with the um, elbow. Uh, so sometimes I'll, I'll suggest, hey, just use some half finger gloves so you're not having to really grip the paddle quite so hard. And conditions are important too. I, you know, if you can kind of optimize getting out when it's not so windy or you're not going straight into a current, you know, as you're kind of getting through an injury, you'd rather say, okay, let me go paddle when it's calm and, and not so uh, stressful to your body. 
Yeah, there's a few things you touch on there that I'll, I guess I'll elaborate some examples for myself. Like I know for um, the, the paddle grip stuff, like I had a mistake that I made in the Bill Bauer race last year. Bruno and I were coming into the finish line and I slipped my paddle twice and he like, you can't do that at the elite level. And he just paddled away with the victory, which was hard to watch. But I, I sort of um, learned that I was just gripping my paddle so hard that not only was I slipping on my paddle because of my sunscreen or whatever on my hands, but my forearms are starting to blow up. So I started using the, the BMG Dragon Grip, which made a huge difference because now I don't have to focus on gripping my paddle as much. And I have used other techniques like wax, but then the wax melts and then it's like hard to, to maintain that grip. And I'm sure there's other um, tools out there that you can use, like the, 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 the glove thing that you were talking about just then. But that's a big thing. And I think that can sort of really affect if you're, if you're gripping your paddle too hard. That's sort of like the, the golfer's elbow, the tennis elbow right. that can really become a problem. Right. Yeah, that, that can be really plaguing to people. Elbow um, injuries, uh, I know for me, it came up, I just was doing pull-ups one night and then went out the next morning and paddled, and I felt a little something doing the pull-up, but then I felt it on the paddle. And, and I mean, it, it's been a year, and I still feel it occasionally. So, I mean, it, that's something that can really plague you. And um, But those are things that I kind of went through myself, was how do I change this and, and make little little modifications. And, you know, I, this one point I tried changing my paddle and I quickly discovered that was not the right thing. You know, it was way too much kind of grippiness in the water that was pulling on um, that particular area. So I think, you know, equipment does play a big part of it, especially, you know, in an endurance oriented sport, you know, that if it's not right, you're going to, you know, have potentially a problem. Yeah. It's interesting. You speak about paddles, um, paddle length, paddle width, paddle grip. It's all really relevant to paddling. So I know that, um, I guess even when I recommend paddles, paddles to my athletes or just people who ask me, like if you're younger, you can probably handle a little bit more of a stiffer shaft. Uh, but as you get older, a bit of a softer shaft is probably better for you because it, it promotes less load on your shoulders and you can sort of pull through your stroke a little bit more without too much, um, just too much force coming through. Because if you have something like 100% carbon, carbon's got a very low flex property compared to something like fiberglass where it's going to have a lot more flex property. So. Uh, if you if you have less flex, you're going to put full power on the whole way through your stroke, whereas you're going to get less power, but you're going to be able to do it for longer. So that's something that people have to think about. And it's also something about the blade size as well. So um, if you're pulling a bigger blade, you're going to use your muscles more. Like if that's just like a right. fact, like, you know, try and pull your muscles more and, that, and that's going to obviously be okay for sprinting and something like that. But when you're going for a long period of time, it's sometimes better to go for a smaller paddle so you can have those efficient strokes over that, Carolina Cup, for example, you know, like you can't necessarily pull a, a hundred square centimeter paddle for the whole race, you know, that you might be able to do it for 20 meters, but not for um, 12 miles or 13 miles or whatever the race is, you know. So yeah. you're only making those conscious decisions and, and asking different professionals, different coaches. There's so many out there willing to give their advice, or even just messaging people like you were talking about um, on Facebook or something like that. That most people are willing to give advice and, and it makes a big difference. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, in the tennis world, different string tension and different, you know, grip sizes and racket weights, all that. I mean, it, those things make a huge difference. And sometimes, you know, it, you know, not everyone has the means to have two paddles, but you might have a paddle that's more your sprint oriented paddle and then a paddle that's more for your endurance type of events. And I've kind of tried that a little bit myself just to keep one that I know is a bit more forgiving uh, for more daily training and, and endurance oriented uh, paddles that I go on and one that's a lot more grippy that, you know, if I'm really in a shorter race, I could probably get by with, but I like that yeah. feel. I like the catch, you know, that that one has. 
So yeah, yeah, you've just got to make sure that you've got something for the conditions or the race that you're in. And if you don't have something like that, you've got to have something that can do sort of something like really well. Like for example, I bought a surfboard uh, the other day, and I don't surf that often because I'm constantly racing and traveling and training. Well, I normally am, but I'm not right at the moment. So. I yeah. bought a board and I bought something that was all round, something that I could go in small surf and bigger surf or something that I could, I could actually like float on. And like, it wasn't high performance or anything like that, but it was something that I could use for basically all conditions because I'm not actually surfing all the time. And that's something that people just got to make their decisions with their paddles or with their boards. Like I see a lot of the time people getting boards that are way too narrow for them or way too less volume for them or something like yeah. that. And then they, then they have to upgrade because they actually cause themselves injuries because one, they can't stand up so they might fall on their board or two, they're working so hard as soon as they stand on their board, they're not enjoying it and they're putting so much pressure through the little muscles in potentially in their back or in their arm or in their shoulders or whatever yeah. it might be, just trying to stay upright. So how important is like getting the right equipment to preventing injuries? Well, yeah, we've talked a lot about the paddle. We, we didn't really mention the board, which is pretty important too. And, um, you know, I, I think that's certainly been a shift as, as all of us guys that are chasing you, you know, look and say, uh, boy, he's on a 20, 20 inch or 20.75 now inch board. Um, he, he must be so fast because that board, I better get the same one. And so it doesn't, doesn't really always work like that. I mean, I, I can speak for myself. I did go from a 23 inch board to a 21 inch, 21 and a half inch board. And it takes time to get used to that. And a lot of people said, well, are you faster? And all I can say is I think below 23 inches, you're not seeing huge gains in speed. I mean, certainly there's a difference there. Um, for me, though, what I did notice is I was, I was more efficient in current. I was more efficient in wind. And at the end of the paddle, I wasn't so taxed. So there is an element, I think, there as we go narrower with boards and, and stiffer boards, more efficient boards, getting that shape kind of perfect, so to speak, that there is potentially an injury preventative kind of aspect to that versus, you know, even if we put you on a, you know, 11 foot all around stuff and said, go do the Carolina cup race, you're probably going to be hurting, you know, at the end of that, but you put yourself on a, you know, sub 21 inch board and, and you're able to balance on that and be efficient on that. You know, you finish it quicker, you're much less taxed and, and less prone to injury. Um, so I, I do think the board changes that we're seeing potentially have a, a role there too. But like you said, if you go too narrow, which I've made the mistake, you know, going into a race with the wrong board, you know, if you fall a couple times or, you know, uh, you know, too many times, I mean, that's a huge stress to your body. Get back up and get started from a stop again and, and much more prone to an injury in that scenario. It is interesting talking about the, the board widths and hearing your opinion as well. And what I notice is like, obviously, as you go narrow, you become more efficient as a paddler. But obviously, it's a bit harder once you go into ocean or something like that. But if you're on the flat water, a narrow board technically is for me, from what I'm looking at as a, as a coach and analyzing people's technique, it, biomechanically, it's actually a lot better because you can actually get your paddle a lot more vertical along the side of your board, which is what we focus on. Maybe on Surski, we do the opposite, but um, you, you're putting, playing your paddle in and you're actually running along your board. You're actually not, because if, you, if your board's too wide, your, your top end ends up over here and your bottom end's over here. So you're actually almost like having to almost twist rather than actually loading and pushing down. So it, it changes your technique completely. So you're actually opening up your back a lot more to potential injuries. And that's something that I try and prevent with my technique. But when I'm analyzing people, I'm like, well, get your arm across as far as you can, depending on, I guess, your age, your flexibility, um, your, your actual ability and your board. Because 
it does make a huge um, difference depending on which board you're on is how biomechanically efficient you can be. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, just, you know, you're not having to kind of reach out over the side and, you know, obviously to do that, you have to stick your hip out the other way. So mechanically it changes your, your position paddling a lot from side to yeah. side. And so if, if you're able to stay more centered not, and that's less muscle movement, less engagement, and hopefully it results in just a more efficient, you know, path forward. Yeah, and it's very good. I wanted to touch on sciatica. Um, you mentioned it before and I've had young, like, so I've got a mate who's 28 years old. He's got sciatica in his back from just overuse and, and training a lot. And then I've got someone like my dad who just um, jumped on a stand-up paddleboard for the first time a few months ago. And he's had sciatica issues before, but then he jumped on a stand-up paddleboard and had the same issues again. I was trying to teach him, tell him just to stretch and, and do all these different things. But is there anything that you can do sort of as you're getting um, older or as you're doing um, more activities to prevent sciatic pain? Because it is a common injury that I've seen from paddling, not necessarily stand-up paddling, but ocean sports and, and surf ski paddling. Like when you're surf ski paddling, you're obviously rotating around your discs on your lower back and you're obviously constantly doing that with your spine. So is there anything that people can do to prevent that? Like I know I focus a lot on core exercises and like things like planks, like uh, reverse sit-ups, um, I know like flutter kicks, like all that different stuff, even bridge lifts, that those type of activities to sort of strengthen yeah. those areas. But is that really going to prevent a type of injury like that? Or is there certain things you can be doing? Yeah. I mean, we, we all certainly hope so in, in my field. I mean, I'm push almost every patient, I'm pushing them to try to get more fit and do more core work and, um, you know, so many patients I send to physical therapy um, just to try to work on those specific exercises. Uh, unfortunately, you can have a very, you know, elite level athlete who's got a great core and just happens to have an injury. So there, there is also an, a genetic component to some of those things that just can happen. And, you know, I mean, it, you could go to the uh, hardware store, or lift a you know, bag of cement and all of a sudden, you know, you injured your back and it had nothing to do with paddling. Uh, but your back is injured, you herniated a disc, you've now got sciatica and it interferes with your paddling. So, um, you know, I think it, there is, we're trying to learn, I guess, the best lifting techniques for people. And, and I think, you know, since we, we've shifted towards such a computer oriented uh, society, you know, we're also trying to encourage people not to sit all the time and, and to use good posture if they do have to sit. Um, you know, we're trying to encourage people to be fit. We know fitness, uh, higher fitness levels tend to have less chronic pain, low back pain in particular. So you kind of have to have all the pieces of the puzzle, you know, where hopefully you're lifting things properly. You're not, you know, doing things that are going to really stress the area out. Um, when, wherever you're working, it's in a kind of safe environment. You're ergonomically set up so that you're, you know, your shoulders are back, your head up's high, you're kind of poking your butt out. So you're in good alignment there. Um, but unfortunately, those injuries still can happen. And unfortunately, sometimes genetics play a big part in back-related pain uh, and problems like sciatica. But if you have those things, that's all the more important to hopefully have a good diagnosis, have someone you know, get MRI and whatnot that can tell them what's going on, and then hopefully direct you with the right exercises. Uh, for sciatica, there are some things called nerve glide exercises that we try to focus on. Um, and then a lot of the strengthening and lessening stress to that area. Um, we didn't really talk about uh, nutrition much yet, uh, and uh, that would be a whole other topic. But um, what we're seeing in my field is a, is a shift towards 
a lot of plant-based nutrition to help with antioxidants and being anti-inflammatory, aid in healing, lessen troubles like arthritis. Uh, there have been a few studies that actually showed uh, fish oil supplements can help with sciatica. So we're kind of learning a lot of this now, and, and a lot of those supplements are under a bit more scrutiny to hopefully kind of really know, do they help out with certain things? Um, but I think the, the idea with, um, you know, having a good nutrition plan is certainly important at, at any stage of life. Um, you know, if you're younger, you're growing, you need that, you know, good nutrition, uh, females in particular. Um, and then as we get older, it might shift towards more of a, we need an anti-inflammatory type nutrition plan uh, to help, you know, like with your dad who may have some arthritis along with some of these various spine problems. So, you know, that, that's an important ask, uh, key, key to the puzzle too. Yeah. So with, with nutrition, uh, is it, is it such a big important component of the way that you train? Cause obviously if you've got not enough nutrition in your system or you haven't got enough fuel to be able to go out and do your sessions, you're probably more likely to get tired and then make more mistakes. Cause I know like, when I'm coming into the final stages of my race, I have to be sharp because if I'm tired when it comes, you can't make the right decisions because your brain, like your brain's not right there. So you've got to make sure yeah. that yesterday you were drinking enough water and you were eating the right food. And then the week before that right. you were stretching, you're doing the right thing. So when it comes down to that crunch time moment, you can make the right decision like that. Like, you know, it just, and that's, and that comes down to your nutrition because that's where your fuel source is coming from. So there's this whole holistic way of looking at, your body to sort of prevent you prevent um, injuries and actually be able to perform properly. So with the plant-based diet, I know a lot of people talk about it these days and you've got a whole bunch of different ones like veganism, vegetarian, uh, plant-based, which is the main one you're talking about. But what are the, like, you, it's a lot of hype at the moment about these diets. What are the, say like the key three things that you've found from studying that type of diet where it's, it's actually increased performance or increased or decreased the chance of injury? Well, I think, you know, like I said, um, we're still learning a lot about it, but one thing is a cleaner diet and, and whether it is plant-based or just, um, you know, a vegetarian, you know, if, if we want to say kind of a cleaner diet with less processed foods, um, that improves your gut lining health. And so anything you take in, hopefully good nutrition will be absorbed better through your, your digestive system. And so those good, healthy, you know, nutritious meals are hopefully getting where they need to be in a better fashion. So that's, that's kind of one thing that we see. And, and I think also, you know, we're seeing a lot of people have these various allergies and, and um, you know, I think some of it's probably going to boil down to exposure to toxins in our environment, just with pollution and whatnot. And so um, that environment in our body and our own little, you know, kind of uh, uh, our, our, our earth system of our body, we have to have that good environment that's, you know, just like outside, we want it to be clean and healthy. So, you know, I mean, I think there's certainly very good athletes who um, have meat in their diet, but they tend to, you know, kind of pick leaner meats. Um, and there's very good athletes who have only plant-based or veganism. And, you know, that's fine too. They perform well too. And so I think for, for many of us, it's just finding what works in our body. And, and also there, you know, just what you kind of believe in and what seems to uh, be healthy for you. I mean, if you make some changes and you give it a few months and you notice you feel fitter and you feel healthier, then, then perhaps that was a good, you know, thing for you to continue with. Um, it, it does take time though. You know, when, when an athlete or a patient of mine makes these changes with nutrition, it's going to take a few months really to see the, the benefit there. 
And you bring up the point of, you know, on race day, you can't all of a sudden try to just be healthy on race day and, you know, have all the good nutrition that particular day because it was more important what you had the week before, you know, coming yeah. into the race. So, you know, it's like when we see athletes cramping and we, we try to, you know, potentially give them um, uh, salt supplements. It's not necessarily that day that's going to help out. It's, it's leading up to that a little bit. Um, and same thing if they're lack of energy, then you need more carbs the week before than, you know, having that Gatorade during the race. So you got to do all the right things leading up to that, especially for someone at your level, you know, those, those boxes just have to be checked and, and hopefully you're doing all those things during training so that it's not an experiment on race day. Um, yeah, there's just so many factors that go into racing and that, and then when you start, it sort of opens up a whole new like area because I basically own the, I don't have a particular diet. Um, I just eat healthy and make conscious choices when I'm actually eating because otherwise when I'm traveling, when I'm racing, it's impossible to get the certain diet that you want. Like I know I was traveling yeah. in Paris years ago with Slater and he was a vegan. It was like really, really hard for him to go and eat because we're in Paris and it wasn't like widely accepted. So it was quite hard to find restaurants and that type of thing. Right. But, I guess I just try and make sure that I can eat whatever and I don't feel too worried about it. And I think that's comes down to the mental side of things as well, being able to deal with different circumstances when you're away. But then you've also got like um, time zone changes. So then you've got like sleeping habits, like can you get enough sleep before you go into a race? Um, being healthy on planes and you've got like different environments that you're in, like it's going to go, you're going to go from hot to cold. And then you've got um, obviously factors of wearing the right clothing and, and eating the right food and making sure that you're getting up at a certain hour to make sure that you're linking up to the race time that you're going for. Like when you're talking about all these different approaches that you've got to really focus on, how, how do you really manage that? And what do you suggest as I guess, if you've got an athlete who comes into your practice, like how do they best manage say traveling from South Carolina to Paris and racing? Um, do they go early? Do they go late? Do they eat different foods? Like what would you suggest? Well, I think there's there's ideal and then there's real world. And, um, you know, ideally you, you get there, you know, at least three or four days ahead of time. So you have some time to adjust for the plane travel and the, the uh, jet lag and whatnot. Um, so, you know, certainly if you can get there a little bit ahead of time, that that is uh, beneficial, you know, just so you, you're not so stressed out and, and your body is back to a state of being ready to compete. Um, uh, one interesting uh, supplement that may help with jet lag is tart cherry juice. Uh, I've read some studies on that one. So, um, you know, that would be a consideration in that setting. And, you know, if you do have particulars with your nutrition plan, obviously you can try to carry things, you know, as best you can. There's some things, you know, certain uh, bars and shakes that you could, you know, have on hand. But that, that is, you know, it's easy in, in my world. I, you know, I'm able to go home and, and my wife helps out with the nutrition and it's very regiment, you know, it's very easy in that way. And to shift towards kind of a plant-based plan hasn't been that hard because I just, I'm taking in whatever she gives me and she says, you know, this is healthy. Okay, great. And yeah. so, um, you know, but it's different if you're traveling, you know, it can be very stressful if you've got a particular nutrition kind of habit or plan that is, is not, you know, it's, you know, if you're vegan and you try to just show up to Paris, it's going to take a little time to find the restaurants or, you know, the markets where you can get the food that you need. So I think that, you know, going ahead of time and, and, you know, having a little kind of uh, cushion of things that you maybe take with you so that you're getting in your calories that you need and hopefully not stressing yourself out, you know, for, before a race, finding the right food. 
Yeah. And I think it's like, I guess there's a question that I guess I'd pose to a lot of people who have particular diets. Isn't a diet really just a conscious decision of what goes into your body? So I, I always say to my athletes, like if you're, if you've got a diet and you're consciously thinking about what's going into your body each and every meal and each and every day, it's a good thing regardless of what the diet is, because you're actually thinking about what is going into your body and what, and like how that's going to help either help you compete or help you um, go day to day or go get work, get through those first three hours before lunch, you know, like all these decisions that people are making about diets. Like I think I always say all of them are good because unless obviously there might be some extreme ones that maybe aren't good. I don't know those ones, but if you're making conscious decisions about what's going into your body, it's got to be helping you. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that's, it's no different than having the, the training plan that you're, you're set to, you know, the periodization during the year where you're peaking for certain events. I mean, it, it's that process of uh, thinking ahead of time, how is this going to benefit me? And for some patients or people that I see, it's going to be, how can we best, you know, lose some weight and get more fit for an athlete? It's going to be very different. How can we optimize your performance? And, and we're all so different. It, it definitely is going to take, you know, some experimentation along the way. And, there may be setbacks, but you're, you're absolutely right. If you're taking ownership in what goes in your body and what you're putting your body through, whatever that goal you had, you're probably going to be more successful because of what you've been doing. Um, and I, I'm, I really, you know, I, I don't like too much of anything sometimes is a bad thing. And so, yeah. you know, it's a balance obviously. And, and you have to kind of dial it back a notch. You know, if, if you're someone who's my age, I, you have to be realistic that I'm going to have a bad day at work and I'm going to show up home and paddling is not going to be the best thing, but you know, I'll probably be glad I finished it at the end, but I might not feel great during the process. And if I go to some meeting and I'm stuck in a meeting and the food is bad, you know, I'm going to kind of, you don't want to stress out too much about that because that there is an element here of just real life has to come into play. Yeah. And you talk about real life as well. And you talk about paddling coming home from work. Now, here's a question that I like to ask a lot of people because it's like the, about the mental side of whether it's paddling or sport. Is there studies that show that sport helps like relieve stress and reduce inflammation and actually help narrow the focus? Because I've had a lot of people on the boothcast so far who've really spoken about paddling as their, in a way, meditation or as their religion almost because they have to go out and do it because it helps them feel more centered, um, helps them feel relaxed and helps them just get through each and every day. Is, is that a common thing in sports? I think so. I, I picked up on that with a few people you interviewed as well. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, uh, there's certainly studies that show it can help relieve stress and anxiety and, you know, for people who have chronic pain, fibromyalgia, I mean, the number one thing to suggest is, is exercise. Um, and when you add a sport to it, I think you, you add camaraderie with other participants, you know, you add engagement with people, which obviously that helps, you know, just with communication and, and um, just, you know, getting you out, out of your shell, so to speak, and, and, you know, having those relationships that are important. Um, I think when you add a, an element of, you know, I know for me, you know, 2015, when I was just kind of paddling for fitness, if I was tired, I sometimes just got home and sat in front of the TV and said, I'll just paddle tomorrow. And now I go home as fast as I can and I have to get that training in and, and I feel much better when it's, when it's done, you know, that way. And so, you know, I think it, it makes people more regiment. It makes people, I think, more efficient to get things done. Um, and, and there's definitely studies that show good health benefits. 
uh, whether it's to anxiety, depression, just general health measures, um, the quality of, of life, you know, type measurements, we definitely see that in, in sports. So I think for people that grew up in that environment, it's, they tend to be very successful adults. You know, I mean, if you've had that regimented life growing up, you kind of keep that going forward and you might shift towards more just exercise as fitness, but you tend to keep that regimented kind of lifestyle where I have to get up and maybe get my exercise in before work and after work, I'm going to take a walk with the family and, you know, so on. So I, I, I definitely think that that's a benefit of sports participation. I mean, that's one reason, you know, sports doctors want to keep kids active and not, you know, uh, I guess restrict their, their sports when they come in. It is such a key thing, I think, in a lot of people's lives. And we all have our different biases, but I know sport's been a big one for me. And it's, it's been part of my routine for a long time, and I've been very lucky to be a part of it. And as you speak about, it's very good for the mental health, and it's very good to, to meet so many different people and, and be part of the community. But um, is there anything we've, we've skipped on today that you wanted to bring up um, before we wrap this, this thing up? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I think, you know, just the obviously encouraging the safety element, um, you know, paddleboarding is unique and that um, you, you need to kind of know where you're going and, and have a, a paddle plan, so to speak. You know, it's a very individual sport. I know when I go out paddling, probably 95% of the time I'm by myself. So, you know, someone needs to know where you are. I think that's important because unfortunately we still see um, deaths related to paddle sports. And it generally relates to conditions that uh, were problematic and perhaps not having PFD. I think even more important in certain conditions, having the leash on board. Um, so those things are important. I think um, some other anticipatory guidance, you know, obviously uh, we're exposed to a lot of elements and we touched a little bit on nutrition and I think hydration is important too. Um, sun, sunscreen or protective, you know, wear, uh, I, I think that's a key thing and, and um, you know, just having, I think, five sunburns increases your chance of melanoma. So, you know, all, you know, all these little things, we, we have different, uh, I guess, things to worry about like that that are in the environment where if you're indoors playing basketball, you're, you're not exposed to that. So, um, you know, those things I think are important for paddlers, especially people who are just getting into the sport. Um, and then, you know, I would, I would just say on, uh, in, you know, for one final thought is just let sports medicine be the, your advocates. You know, I mean, we, we want you guys to succeed. We want to be a part of that team and, and hopefully be along the way. It's, it's so cool to be involved in a new sport that's, you know, the equipment is so different now than just five years ago. I mean, you think about a traditional sport where the equipment's been the same for 50 years you know, we're, we're seeing an evolution of the sport and, and the injuries come up and hopefully we can be a part of that trying to help the athletes just better themselves. Yeah, and I think it's a super important part of any athlete or any just person who gets out and paddles needs to have a really supportive team around them and sports medicine I think is very much part of that. Great, great, you touched on the safety aspect. I think it's really important to just, I always take my mobile phone with me and that's something that I've always done for a long time now. So I just have a waterproof case and my phone in my in my case and I always have that with me so especially when I'm downwinding down the coast like you speak of different elements of in, in training and in racing you you got to be just safe out there you don't want to have the ghost coast guard chasing I've had that happen to me one time and they've they've been yeah. coming down the coast and like I have my phone and everything with me but like I, I look on Facebook and there's like an alert like for someone missing and I have to like call the police yeah. and go no it's fine like I, here's my track like I know exactly where I was the whole time lots of people knew where I was and I think that's really important to Make sure that you have the right safety gear, like whether it's a PFD, whether it's a leash, whether it's yeah, 
just in between your ears, like knowing how, what your talents are. And if you are pushing those boundaries, be with people who know what they're doing so they can help you if you get in trouble. And sometimes it's not actually your ability. It's actually the mental side of things when you're getting out in the water and you're in conditions that are above your expectation. People panic and it's just like, it, it just happens. And that's just part and parcel of human nature. But also speaking about sunscreen and the UV tops that we wear, like I always wear long sleeve tops. Like you'll see me most of my races. I never actually don't have a, a long sleeve top on. And that's because I've had three, I don't know, um, melanoma type things cut out of my back. So I was like, I guess as a kid, I was out in the sun a fair right. bit. And now I have to be a little bit more careful. I get checks every three three months for a while there. And now I, I get checked uh, guaranteed every year now. So that's just something that's really important, I think, for everybody to just make sure you're looking after yourself. And whether it's an injury or whether it's a skin check, you've got to be making sure that you're using those support networks like sports medicine to keep yourself going, whether you uh, like it or not. It's, it's part and parcel of life. Right. Yeah, yeah, so it's been, yeah, so it's been very, very cool talking to you, mate. Um, I've enjoyed all your insights. I'm sure um, we'll get you on again at some stage. So if anybody out there has any like, follow-up questions that they'd like to hear from, uh, contact John Basson. Um, what is the best way to contact you? Yeah, Facebook's fine. I mean, that, that works. Um, yeah. You know, I'm on uh, 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 there at least, you know, I, it's odd that, you know, as a doctor now, we have to check all these social media uh, avenues too. And so I have a lot of patients who contact me on Facebook middle of the day. Hey, I got to come in and see you. So, you know, it's, uh, it's fun practicing medicine these days, how it's so different than when I started. Now all this stuff is new. This is the first Zoom conference I've had. So add yeah. one more thing to the list. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it constantly evolves. You've got to stick with the times, the same as paddleboarding. The boards keep changing and everything else right. keeps changing around it. So you got to be part of it. Um, mate, thanks again. But thank you to everybody who has been watching these as well. Uh, it's been amazing to get so many different people on. Um, I've heard so many great stories, so much great advice, um, especially from this one today. So if you have any sort of follow-up questions, anybody you'd like me to get on to speak to, please let me know. Uh, if you want to listen, Boothcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to watch, they're all on Facebook under Michael Booth and there's a Boothcast section in videos. So, mate, John, thank you so much for coming on today and all the best with your training and all your yeah. sports medicine stuff. And I, I hope to speak to you very soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you.